Let me invite you to take out your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in the book of Ephesians for much of our lesson tonight. And if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, we'll read verses 22 and 23 uh, here in just a moment. Um, I want to begin tonight by just thanking you. Thank you for inviting me to come and be with you. Uh, thank you for the encouragement uh, that you've shown me this week. Uh, it has been uplifting for me to be here, um, and I pray that that's uh, something that's reciprocal, that it's been an encouragement to you for, to have this series of lessons. And I hope over the course of this series we've been reminded of something we already knew, something we already knew to be true, that we are better together in Christ's church. And tonight I want to focus on that church. Um, we I was talking with somebody at lunch today. Um, I've been where I am now for 12 years. I know where all the bodies are buried, right? And yet still there is no other group of people that I would rather be a part of than the Lord's people. And, and Christ's church, the church that he established, is glorious. And I want us to be reminded of that tonight. And I, I hope the lesson tonight is an encouragement to you so that you do see and remember how awesome how glorious this church that Christ built really is. But in order to do that tonight, we have to uh, answer a question. What is Christ's church? If we think about the church, and maybe that's one of those questions where we say, well, you know, it's, you know, you know, it's... And maybe we have a hard time putting an exact definition on what exactly it is. If we're going to explain to someone else what Christ's church is, how would you go about doing that? In Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, again, we're going to be looking at a lot of verses from Ephesians, but here at the end of this chapter that's talking about the blessings that we have in Christ according to God's grace, it says in verse 22, of Christ, and he, God, put all things under his, Christ's, feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When he's talking about the body of Christ, when he's talking about the church in those terms, I want to suggest that he's talking about what we sometimes call the universal church, what I'm just going to call tonight the church. As implied by the PowerPoint, the church is people. And, and maybe that's an answer that we would get right, right off the bat. We know, or we should know, that it's not an institution or organization separate from those people that make it up. It's not something that you have to get into in order to be saved. Not something that dispenses God's grace and salvation to those who come to be a part of it. The church is the saved. That's what it is. It's saved people. Whenever they lived... And wherever they lived, those saved people of God, since the coming of Christ, make up the church. And when I became a Christian, uh, quite a few years ago now, God added me to a group of people. And that group of people includes Peter and Paul and Dorcas and Mary and Martha and Barnabas and Stephen and Lydia and Aquila and Priscilla, some of the very characters that we've talked about this week. It includes the the faithful people in Christ who have passed on from this life that, that I knew in years past. It includes my mother's father, Van. It includes my father's mother, Joyce. 
People who had great influence on me. And it includes the faithful in Christ who have passed on from this place. Those names and faces that you can think of in your own life who influenced you so greatly in your Christian walk. Those people are still a part of the church now. And of course, it includes all of the faithful who are alive today. All of us together make up the body of Christ, the church the redeemed by the blood of Jesus who have been added to his church. Maybe another way of expressing it in terms that that certainly we can see is that God doesn't have 21 churches. You know, we sometimes talk about the first century church and the second century church, and now we're in the 21st century church. And Christ doesn't have the so-called American church and the Chinese church and the Guatemalan church. I understand that all of that is accommodative language. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not really exactly accurate when we think about the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you're still open in your Bible to Ephesians, notice what he says in verse 4. There is one body. And he's already said what the body is. The body is his church. And Christ is the head of it. So he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One body that is made up of, of the members of that body, right? God's faithful people. All of those who are approved by God. Well, who is that? Who are those people? Well, it is all those who have their name in the book of life. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This same kind of terminology is used in Philippians 4, 2 and 3, where Paul says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Synthache to be of the same mind in the Lord. Because they're in the Lord, they should have the same mind. And I urge you also, true companion, whomever that might have been, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Turn to the book of Revelation. We see that idea of the book of life come up a a great deal. If you want to mark your spot in Ephesians, we'll come back there in just a little bit. But turn to Revelation chapter 20 and notice just a few verses with me from the end of the book of Revelation. First, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. Revelation 20 and verse 12. John says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. Now, I understand that this is symbolic um Apocalyptic literature is probably apostolic literature too, now that I think about it. It's apocalyptic, and I understand that these are symbols, but let's think about the image that's being used there in the book of Revelation, right? So we're standing before God, and books are opened. And I think the image there is that you have a book, and 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 I have a book. And those books are opened up, and it's like, all right, these are the things done in the body. These are the deeds that were done. What have you done with your life? But there's another book that's there, and it's the Lamb's book of life. And when all is said and done, that book is opened, and you go down the list, and is your name 
written in that book or not. This is the moment of truth for every single one of us. We drop down to verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Later in the 21st chapter, if you drop down to verse 27, in describing this glorified church that is found in heaven, it says, And there shall by no means enter it, this city of God, this new Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. Why? Why is nothing sinful like that going to enter? Because it is only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going to enter into this city. Can you imagine a place? Can you imagine a place where you only find faithful Christians doing what's right? It's wonderful to think about, isn't it? And when we talk about the church, Christ's body, that's exactly what we're talking about. What is the church? It is those whose names are written in the book of life. And what a blessing it is for us to be considered part of the body of Christ as Christians. We are part of the church. Now, just to be explicit, that is not Fairview Park. Fairview Park is not the church. You are a church, a local church in a specific time. We're here in 2022 and in a specific place. We're in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so when we think about a local church, that's what it is. It is a group of Christians who happen to live at the same time and within reasonable distance of one another who have agreed to work and worship together. And so you come together as a local church under the oversight of elders, what a blessing that is, you have that here, doing the things which the Lord has authorized or commanded local churches to do. And so we read about in our New Testaments, the, the church in Jerusalem, the church at Antioch and Ephesus, we read about the seven churches of Asia, we have letters written to local churches in Thessalonica and the church in Rome and the church in Philippi and others. These are local churches in a specific time, and in a specific place. So what is the Fairview Park Church of Christ? It's a group of Christians who live within a reasonable distance of here, who all live in 2022, who have agreed to work and worship with one another. And you have submitted yourself to the oversight of this plurality of elders who oversee you. And, and they're striving to do the things we read about in the Scriptures, just as you are. The things that local churches do. You're just trying to be a group of Christians, right? I mean, am I wrong about that? I'm a visitor. You know, I'm not from here. Is that right? Am I accurate in what I'm describing there? You're just trying to be a group of Christians. Nothing more, nothing less. Not some particular branch of Christian, not some particular kind of Christian, just a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, having given those definitions... Only Christ determines who is part of His body, who is part of the church that belongs to Him. And people, to some degree, determine who is a part of or a member of a local church. Churches of the New Testament determined whether or not to accept someone into their membership. And that was based on evidence as to whether someone was part of the body of Christ or not. And so they were accepted because, hey, you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the church. 
And we see a number of examples of this, especially as we go through the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 9, in verse 26 and following, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, notice, he tried to join the disciples. Now you remember Saul had been a persecutor of the church, and he had been up north, he had gone to Damascus, and then he had gone out into the wilderness. But he comes to Jerusalem and he says, I want to be a part of this church in Jerusalem. What happens? But they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, was he a disciple? See a lot of this. Was he a disciple? Yeah, yeah, he was a disciple. But they were saying, I'm not sure if you're really a Christian, if you're really a part of the body of Christ. So what happens, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he, Barnabas, declared to them how he, or excuse me, Saul declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas vouches for him, he brings him to the church, and they accepted him on the basis of Barnabas. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He joined himself to that local church there in Jerusalem. And then later we see that Saul, or Paul, is going to be sent out. And in Acts chapter 18 and verse 27, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. Now what's implied by that? If they write the disciples to receive him, what could have happened? They could have not received him. They could have said, no, you can't come and be part of us. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Someone comes, let's say, and says, I want to be a member of this church. Well, the elders have to make a determination as to whether this man or woman should be received into this group, this church, or not. And they have the right to ask questions about those people's lives and their salvation. But whatever the answers to those questions and whatever the elders decide, the Lord has already determined whether they are a part of His church or not. Because the Lord is the one who adds to the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, And the Lord added to the church the congregation of Christians, their number daily, those who were being saved. And we know, of course, that the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His, and He knows perfectly those who are not His as well. And we, as members of a local church, even the elders of this church, they cannot blot anyone out of the Lamb's book of life. It is only Jesus who can do that kind of blotting. And when He blots them out, what happens? They are removed. You see that? They're removed from His church. But only Christ has the authority to remove someone from the church, His church. And the wonderful thing is, is we don't have to wring our hands about that. We... We know that God is perfect in this. There is no one in the church that's not supposed to be. There's no one out of the church who ought to be in it in that sense. But people make mistakes. We are likely not perfect, even though we try, even though our hearts are in the right place. Elders make mistakes. Less than the rest of us, probably, but they make mistakes. And we might... As fallible people, we might accept people into our number, into our local congregation, who are really not part of the, the body of Christ, not someone who is part of the church. 
And at the same time, we might reject someone from our number. They come and say, I want to be part of this local church. And in the midst of our questioning, maybe we misunderstand or we don't see correctly. And we say, no, you can't be part of this group. And so we reject them, even though they are part of the Lord's church. But the Lord makes no mistakes in this regard. And that's a great blessing. Um, if we think about this, this idea of accepting and even rejecting, I'm reminded of 3 John, just one chapter in 3 John. In verses 9 and 10, we're told that there is this uh, guy in the church who's kind of like the head man, the head honcho. And John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, whose name will live in infamy, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. He doesn't receive John and the other apostles. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us. That's a great word. Pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. Are they Christians? Yeah, they're the brethren, but he does not receive them and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So they're part of the Lord's church. And Diotrephes, as much power as he had in that local place, he couldn't put them out of the Lord's church if he wanted to. But the local church, that local church, he had power there. And he could put them out. Um, maybe we think about a, that idea of being put out of a church. That's, that's scary. Um, but good-hearted people are not going to generally want, of course, to put someone out who shouldn't be put out. But sometimes that has to happen with someone who has rejected Christ, who has been removed from the Lamb's book of life. When we think about Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren. They called themselves brethren. They were part of the local church, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. They were a part of a local church, but were they part of the Lord's church? No, they were false brethren. You have people who are part of a local church who are no part of the church, the body of Christ. Now, I hope this is clear. Um, Stephanie says, I have a, a tendency to beat a dead horse. But that's because I want to make something abundantly clear sometimes. And I think this clears up so many questions that people have and ask us about the church of Christ. And maybe even questions that we have about the church as well. I believe I speak for this congregation when I say this group of people are just trying to be Christians. And they have pooled their resources because all of them believe themselves to be a part of the Lord's church, the church, the universal church. And I think that distinction between a local church and, and the Lord's church, the church, the body of Christ, I think that's something that we can see pretty clearly when we come across it in Scripture. So uh, the next part's going to be a little interactive. You can almost always clearly see the difference in the text between the body of Christ, the Lord's church, the universal church, and a local church. So here's what I'm asking you to do. This is kind of a pop quiz, but nobody else knows what your answers are and that sort of thing. You're not answering audibly. All I want you to do, I'm going to put a scripture up on the screen. If you think that it is the Lord's church, the body of Christ, just give me a, a one. And you can do it just right down here. Nobody else can see except me. I'm not going to call you out from the pulpit, I promise. If you think it's talking about a local church, like this local church here, just give me a two right here, just right in front of you. Can you do that? Do that for me? Okay. 
about three of you said yes, you could do that. So <laughs> let's see how it goes, okay? Um, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So one is universal church, two is local church. Okay? That's one, yeah. It's the universal church. It's Christ's church, my church that I'm making. Okay? How about this one? Matthew chapter 18, 16, and 17. The whole week I've been worried that I've been spending more time on one screen than the other. So I'm going to come over here. But if he does not listen, this is a brother who's sinned against you and you go to him to try and make things right. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, these witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So... Universal church, local church. Yeah, two, local church, right? I can't tell everybody who's ever been a part of the Lord's church about this guy's behavior, but I can tell a local church about that, okay? Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Very good. Two, this is the local church. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That one's maybe a little bit more difficult, but y'all got it. No problem. Okay, it's the universal church, right? Because it's throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. One more. 1 Timothy 5.16 If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it might care for those who are truly widows. Good. Excellent. Y'all got it. As we stand and sing, right? (laughs) I want that to be clear in our mind. Because that's helpful. Not just for our understanding. Not just for the understanding of those that we might talk to in the religious world about who we are and and why we do the things that we do. I think it's also helpful for us as Christians trying to live as Christ has called us to live, and we see these awesome passages about the church and how great it is, and not 100% of the time do we look around us and see that. And so maybe we need to be reminded how glorious Christ's church, the body of Christ, truly is. Is And that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time this evening. So turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Um, and let's beginning, begin reading there in verse 2. The whole third chapter is really an aside by the Apostle Paul. He was famous for this, you know. Here's my main point, and then a giant in parentheses, this is what I'm talking about. In fact, in the New King James, it has a dash right there at the end of verse 1. But he keeps going in verse 2, and he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me, given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Now, don't let that word mystery trip you up. Mystery is just something that is unrevealed. And when it is revealed, it is no longer a mystery. I'm going to put my hand in my pocket. Um, I put something in my pocket that, uh, before I came to, to services tonight. 
Um, and it's something that, uh, that I hadn't been having with me all week. I just got it out uh, of something at the hotel. I put it in my pocket. What's in my pocket? Raise your hand if you know. No? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Well, it's, uh, it's a pocket knife. They're like, well, yeah, of course it's a pocket knife. Yeah, that's what, what you would have. You're a Texan. You'd have that in your pocket. But until I took it out and revealed it, it was a mystery. It was a mystery to you. Now that it's revealed, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, it's a pocket knife, and you see that, right? Well, that's what we're talking about here. When we're talking about a mystery, it's not like a murder mystery. Oh, I I don't know if we can figure it out. It's something that is unrevealed. But Paul says, now the mystery has been revealed. And he says in the second part of verse 3 there, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So how did Paul get that mystery? By revelation. God told him. And how did the Ephesian brethren get this mystery? Well, Paul told them what the Lord had told him. Now, Paul wasn't the only one who received the mystery, of course. It was only revealed by God to a few, but they they spoke those things, and then they wrote those things down for us. Notice there in uh, verse 5, "...which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men." as it has been revealed by the Spirit to His uh, holy apostles and prophets. So now it has been revealed, and we know the mystery. Uh, let's imagine somebody was in the bathroom just a couple of minutes ago. They missed the whole thing that I pulled out of my pocket. And they say, you know, what did he just say? What was the mystery in his pocket? Well, I could tell them, but I've moved on from that, right? We're, we're on a different part of the lesson. But if I write it down where others can see it, then anyone who reads can know the mystery. And that's exactly what the inspired prophets and apostles did. It was first communicated orally, but then they wrote it down so that we could know the mystery too. And what was the mystery? Verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. What's the body? It's the church, right? And partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. So we're fellow heirs in Christ. Whether you're from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, likely most of us are from a Gentile background tonight, we're all partakers of God's promise in Christ. We're all members of the same body. And what is the body? It's the church. Which brings us to verses 8 through 11. And the first thing that I want us to see about Christ's glorious church, the church that we're talking about here, His body, this glorious church, is going to be something that we read about here in verse 8 through through 11. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, listen, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ's glorious church, His body, is the manifold, revealed wisdom of God. The church is the culmination of the fully revealed plan of God. 
And it makes known his manifold or multifaceted wisdom. God's wisdom was working in so many different ways, in so many different times, and we have just a small record of that in the Old Testament, bringing everything about to bring his church through his Son. His wisdom is made known to those on earth and those in the heavenly places. It's made known to the devil. It's made known to the angels. It's made known to the heavenly host. And we're told that they desired to look in these things. They wanted to know where this was all headed. And the church is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose in Christ. God had a plan to bring people to Himself. And He chose us, Ephesians 1 and verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. God in His wisdom said, I'm going to have a people someday. And I have predestined that this kind of person, the person who loves me with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the kind of person who will submit themselves to Christ, I'm going to bring them to myself. They're going to come to me. The importance of the church is difficult to overstate. What we collectively are as a fulfillment of God's plan, with all of our talents and resources and love for Christ and our our spiritual fellowship with Him and one another. And that's not to say that God's wisdom is only revealed in our imperfect activities. God's wisdom is more clearly seen in God's perfect, eternal plan and His ability in His manifold wisdom to match any situation of life with which any of us are faced with a solution and bringing us together by Jesus Christ to Himself, as we just read. We need to appreciate the glorious nature of the church. And if we do, if we appreciate the wisdom of God in the church, you know what we won't do? We won't say, well, you know, that sounds good, but I think I've got a better solution. This is God's wisdom revealed. Wisdom that angels desired to look into. Wisdom that was from before the foundation of the world and thousands of years in the making. Collie Caldwell says in his little um, commentary, not that little, but readable commentary on Ephesians, our absurd stupidity, take it up with Collie, not me, if you don't like me saying that word. Our absurd stupidity is made known when we disregard any aspect of His plan, challenge His authority in the church, or question His revelation of truth. Christ's church is not flawed in its design. It is not obsolete in what it provides. It is not an afterthought that was hastily thrown together, as many in the religious world say. It was not something that God was like, well, my first plan didn't work out. Uh, What am I going to do? Let's have the church. No. It is glorious. Perfectly planned from before the foundation of the world. It is all of God's wisdom working together to bring it about. Isn't that awesome? I fail. I fail over and over and over as a preacher to communicate 
And maybe it's just not possible to communicate how awesome Christ Church really is. And God's wisdom in bringing it about. But that's not all. I feel like a, a car salesman. Wait, that's not all. It is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's taken from Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. We read these verses a moment ago, but let's go back just a little further. Paul's prayer for the brethren is that their eyes are going to be opened, that he wants them to see what God has done for them. And what he wants them to see, among other things, is verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. That's awesome, isn't it? And if you would have asked me for many years to explain what that meant, I would have said, that's awesome, isn't it? But let's see if we can unpack exactly what it is Paul might be talking about here. This filling or fullness theme is a notable pattern in the book of Ephesians. He talks about filling things up all throughout the book. You go down to chapter 3 and verse 19, for instance. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And in the context, he's talked about the Holy Spirit. He's talked about Christ. He's talked about God the Father being in us. And he says, I want to fill you up with the Godhead. That's incredible. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. The image there is something that is totally full, but it's not just full, it is full to overflowing. It is exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that we can ask or even think. God can fill us up, the Apostle Paul says. And so if we drop down to chapter 4 and verse 10, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Uh, verse 13 talks about that idea of the fullness of Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 18 talks about being filled with the Spirit. And even when that word isn't there, that exact word isn't there, that concept is so often there in the book of Ephesians. In the fifth chapter, Paul will have the church correspond to the wife, who is like the own body of her husband. And, and that means if the two become one flesh, two become one, what is that? If not completion, fullness, and feeling, and filling. He completes her. But it's not just the marriage relationship that is under consideration he talks about all of this, um, and he says in verse 29 of Ephesians 5, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
He quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, and it reminds us of what Adam said. We've quoted this a couple of times in this series. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's just the verse before what Paul quotes. You know what Adam is saying is, I was incomplete before, but now I'm complete. This completes me. And what that verse in Ephesians 1 and verse 23 says is there is a sense, there is a sense in which we complete Christ. Now, does that mean Christ was incomplete? No, of course not. Not in the sense of need, but kind of yes, in the sense of desire, in the sense of what he wanted. Everything that Christ came to do and accomplish is completed. It is finished. It is filled to the top in you, in us, in His bride, His church. In Ephesians chapter 1, He talks about that we are His inheritance in the saints. Have you ever thought about why God did what He did? God in His foreknowledge, He had this plan from before the foundation of the world. So God in His foreknowledge, He created human beings. He knew that they were going to sin. He knew that they were going to hurt Him. He knew He was going to have to send His Son to die on their behalf. And He did it anyway. Why? Why would He do that? What does God get out of all of this? He gets us. He gets His people. Those who love Him and want to be with Him. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. All of those saved people who have unity in their commonality in Christ, common faith, common love, common hope, all of those ones found in Ephesians chapter 4, He is above all, He is through all, and He is in us all, we are told. We complete Him, and He completes us too. It is beyond my understanding to think that little old me and some other people with imperfect but good hearts like mine that I'm what God wanted all along. And that we together complete Christ and what He came to do. The greatest compliment we have ever received as the church is that we are the body of Christ. He is the head, but we are the body. And the head is most important, and the head directs the body, but it is not complete without Him. And all of this, Christ's glorious church, His body is the manifold wisdom of God, the fullness of Him who fills all in all, and it is all to the glory of God. One final time, I remind you that it is the body of Christ that is under consideration. And if we go to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. What's that? It's the church, the whole family in heaven and on earth, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Drop down to verse 18. We want to dwell in love, being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, and be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us together, to him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We are to the glory of God and we give glory to God when we do all of the things that he talks about in chapters 3 through 6. We are designed as Christians to have the purpose that God created for us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these good works that he determined from before the foundation of the world. And you read through chapters 3 through 6, you see what it is that you're supposed to do but not just you, what we're supposed to do in order to bring glory to God. And these good works glorify our Father in heaven and they can be powerful enough. Our city set on a hill that cannot be hidden can shine bright enough that others see that light and they glorify our Father who is in heaven. God is glorified in the church Because those in the church live to glorify Him in all of our actions. And you can imagine someone. Can you imagine someone in your life who has an issue with the church, has an issue with Christianity in general, who has an issue maybe with with you as a Christian? And over the course of your interactions, maybe over weeks or months or even years, you can imagine someone saying, You know, I used to speak evil of those Christians. But I tell you what, they're some of the very best citizens that we have in Little Rock. Have you ever noticed the way they talk, how encouraging they are, how they never lie or steal? Their whole life is lived in this kind of wise, quiet peace. And they have such stable homes. Have you ever seen the way they deal with one another? There's so much love and unity and forgiveness among them. And even when they suffer persecution, they're not afraid. They know what they stand for and why they have hope. You know what? I spoke evil of them before, but I just can't. I can't speak evil of them anymore. And these might even be brought to glorify God by our good works. All y'all's good works. These people, this collection of people called the church to the glory of God. Please don't misunderstand me. You know, I've talked about Christ's glorious church, His body. The local church can be glorious too. I love the local church. I love this local church. I've been with you long enough to love you. And the local church is great for so many reasons. It's great because every Christian should have a spiritual family who encourages them. God set it up that way. Every Christian should have a spiritual family who holds them accountable for sin. Every Christian should have the opportunity to learn and be taught further from God's Word because of the local church. Every Christian should have the opportunity to worship God collectively and with other Christians because God set up the church. Every Christian should have his or her physical needs met, no matter what the circumstances are, because of the local church. The church makes good on Christ's promise in Matthew chapter 6 that every citizen, every single citizen of His kingdom will have his or her needs met if they seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And every Christian should have fellowship in the preaching of the gospel. I mean, the local church is awesome. It is great. But if I can speak candidly, the local church can be maddening. 
so encouraging one minute and so discouraging the next. Because the local church is flawed, not in its design, but it's flawed because it's made up of flawed people. It's made up of people like me who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the local church can even include those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The church can be filled with wolves and sheep's clothing and, and those famous hypocrites that apparently are only found among Christians. We know better than that. But the local church can let us down. The local church can even hurt us. Maybe you've been let down. Maybe you've been hurt. I want to remind you tonight, our hope, our hope is not in the local church. It's in Christ. And it's in His glorious church. I want to encourage you to be encouraged by His church. All the host of saved in this age. Because you're a part of something that is the manifold wisdom of God. Something that is the fullness of Him who fills all in all, that is all to the glory of God. And whatever anyone in a local church does or doesn't do, they cannot and they will not take that away from you. So the last question. We're better together. Amen? Amen, we are. We are better together. Those who, have, who are part of Christ's family, who are part of the church, we're better together. And so my final question in this series is this. Are you a part of Christ's glorious church? Have you been baptized into the one body that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13? For by one spirit we were baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, this is how you're saved. This is how you're baptized into the body. This is how the Lord adds you to his church. Not to some local church but to His church. By one Spirit, the teaching and doctrine and guidance of the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles and prophets, written down so that we could know it, the faith, the gospel, we were baptized into one body, Christ's glorious church. And this was God's design to not leave us alone, floundering by ourselves in a wicked and terrible world but to give us a family of other people who love, who love Him and love one another. And if you're not part of that, boy, you're missing out. You're missing out now. But how much more in the time to come? Won't you have your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Won't you put Christ on in baptism? If you're already a Christian, you know this series was really mostly for you. And I've given uh, an admonition every night, given you an opportunity. I don't know if this is your last opportunity or not, but I know it's my last opportunity to say something to you. Uh, I have been so grateful to experience the love of these brethren this week. And if there's something in your life that you need help with, be it something of sin or temptation or just difficulty, I know, I speak with confidence that these brethren would be here for you. If you'll make it known, if you'll ask for their help, 
Ask for their prayers. And maybe that's something you do right now. You come to the front, that's great, and we'll all pray for you. But maybe that's something you need to do by reaching out in the day to come. I pray that you'll do that. Because you're not better alone. You're better together. Won't you come now, while together we stand and while we sing.